there's sort of these two ways of looking at science that I think predominate now. One is that, well, it's a study and therefore it's truth with a capital T. Or there's, well, it's a study, but lies, damn lies, and statistics. And the truth is somewhere in between, right? Like, it's not magic sauce, but it's, well, it is magic sauce. <laughs> but it's like one of those sauces that has lots of complex flavors in it. Yeah. It's What's the Point from 538. My name is Jody Avergan. Is science broken? Not exactly. It's just really, really hard, like it's always been. That's the basic idea behind Christy Ashwanden's latest piece for 538, sort of a tour of the various perverse incentives within and without the scientific community and the way the field of science is in a moment of crisis. We'll hear from Christy in a bit, but first, a couple minutes on a data point that caught our eye this week. It's the significant digit. Excuse me, you want to talk to me? Can I, can I tell you a number? Huh? Can I tell you a number? Yes, you can tell me the number. <laughs> All right. So the number is 218, which is the number of babies last year that were named Anakin in the United States. Anakin? What kind of name is that? So Anakin was the name of one of the Jedis in Star Wars, and it's actually the Jedi that became uh, Darth Vader. <laughs> Oh, that's, oh, yeah, that's how he became Dog Vader. Yes, I remember that. <laughs> I, you know, who knows why they named their kid Anakin? That's weird. That's really weird. <laughs> because that's not a name I would like to go to school with. <laughs> I mean, there are some made-up names that are, sound cute, you know, but Anakin? Mm-mm. No, not that. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> so what's your name? Sandra. That's a pretty normal name, but it's a nice name. Thank you. <laughs> I have a normal mother. <laughs> Sandra's last name, by the way, is Moje, and uh, 538 reporter Andrew Flowers is here. It's kind of perfect we have you here because somehow this has become a bit of a beat of yours, the yeah. baby name trends. Um, and we don't want to specifically rag on the 218 people who named their kid Anakin <laughs> in this. Uh, we want to just provide some context. So when you look at the data from the Social Security Administration about baby names, is 218 Anakins a lot? It's up to your interpretation specifically. I mean, uh, what is what is a weird name to you depends. I mean, Sandra, uh, the, the woman you interviewed, that name is uh, a little more common. It ranks 800th if uh, there are 300 and something Sandras and there are 200 and something Anakins. Which one is weirder? That's up to you. So Entertainment Weekly wrote up this Anakin thing with the headline, Anakin is one of the 1,000 most popular names in America. And you just said Sandra's just a few hundred above it. If you look at the data... Is there a drop-off point between the first-tier uh, group of names and the second-tier? It's 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 hard to specify that there's an exact drop-off. And, and by the way, it's, it's interesting that it, it differs by sex. But in, in general, there's just kind of a steady decline. Uh, for men, it's, it's, a, it's, it's a little steeper. So there's this group of boys' names that's a little more clustered. Yeah, exactly. Like the top boys names tend to account for a larger percentage of of all boys than than for girls. They tend to spread them out more. So Anakin is is kind of rare. I think the top 1000 is a fair cutoff point. At that point you're only a few hundred names. I think that's pretty rare. So one thing that Sandra mentioned to me when we spoke uh was that she feels like just in her 
daily life that names are swinging back towards traditional names, Marys and Katies. Do we have any notion of the overall trends and the ebb and flow? I, or I can't tell you right now necessarily that names are becoming you know more traditional or less. What we do find though is that there is cycles to names that like they have their peaks. Sandra, for example, was really popular in the 1940s. It hasn't really made a comeback since then, but it could. For example, um, uh, me and my wife are having a baby next month, and we've picked out a name that we're keeping secret. Oh, okay, you could say it on the podcast. Uh, yeah, no I'll one's just listening. tell everyone, yeah. and, and my wife would divorce me. No, <laughs> seriously, it, it, it's a, it's a secret, and the, the name we're looking at, yeah, was popular at one point and has kind of uh, declined and now is resurging again. So maybe Sandra is right that like we're picking a name at least that is kind of coming back into style. All right. Andrew Flowers, uh, when you have your kid and your kid has a name, can we then say it on the podcast? Yes. Yes. I, I would be I would be honored. Okay. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. If you do a Google search for Is Science Broken, you get a surprising number of recent results. Pieces in Wired, Nature, Aeon Magazine, huge discussion threads on Reddit, and our very own Christy Ashwanden has waded in to that question as well. She's here to talk about the ways that people are doing bad science and how to fix science. So, Christy, welcome to What's the Point? Great to be here, Jody. Let's start the interview with where you start the piece, which is with this phenomenon known as p-hacking, which I always want to pronounce facking. But anyway, p-hacking is one of the sort of techniques of bad science. So what what exactly is it? P-hacking. To really explain what p-hacking is, you need to understand what p-values are. The p-value is the probability that you would get the data that you saw or something at least as extreme if that hypothesis weren't true. So the higher your p-value, the more of an indication that your thesis is probably not true because the opposite could just as well be true. Yes, except it's more complicated than that because there's a lot of reasons why it could not be true. So this is really only looking... so. This is what, why science is so hard, right? Like, you yeah. have this simple question. <laughs> Already. We're you 45 seconds the into question. the interview. Like, yeah. it, you're yeah. saying, Christy, answer the question. And I can't, you know, this, this isn't a yes or no question, right? But in practice, in the real, in the world of science as it stands today, the way that it is implemented or used as a, as a standard is, correct me if I'm wrong here, which I'm sure I will be, you create a study, you have a p-value, which is sort of like a measure of... It's a bullshit meter of sorts, perhaps. And if you are uh, under a certain value, and I think that's 0.05, as you point out, that is often the bar that you have to clear or, I guess, get under in order to be accepted into journals, in order to be able to to present your work as statistically valid. That's right. Yeah, that that 0.05 p-value has sort of become the bar, the standard bar of quote-unquote statistical significance. And I really don't like that term, statistical significance, because it Mm -hmm. kind of gives it too much weight. But the results that you get are very dependent on how you do the analysis, which variables you include, what kind of analysis you do. I mean, there's all this fiddling around that you can do that will affect what kind of p-value you get. And so what p-hacking is, is it's fiddling around with those little decisions until you get a p-value that's under your threshold. So you can say, cha-ching, we hit it, statistically significant, let's go publish in science or nature or, you know, there. I don't want to single out any, any particular journal because sure. I don't think that there are necessarily ones that are to blame here. This is a fairly universal problem. Are there people actually doing this, like saying, I have an idea that I want to prove, uh, and it perhaps comes from a place of having an agenda. 
and I'm going to go fiddle with a data set until it shows me the tells me the story that I want to tell, and then it has a p value that will will pass this barrier. I mean, are, are you suggesting there are people actually doing it that way? I don't think that most researchers and I don't think that most published papers today are produced in that way where people are trying to, to do this um, in a nefarious way. But in real life, a lot of times what happens is someone has their data set, they analyze it. It's not significant. The differences aren't significant, but they're really close. And so they just do a little fiddling because, you know, the thing is, you really want to find something, right? Like no one's doing science to, to find nothing, right? But I do think it happens quite a lot. And, you know, there are instances there. There is a lot of corporate science going on now where people are, you know, there's drug companies who are testing their drugs. And there are so many things that you can do with study design and with, mm-hmm. you know, choosing things like um, intermediate endpoints. Um, so instead of testing whether the the drug really has an effect on the disease, you look at some other endpoint where you say, well, there is a change in blood glucose, say, or something like that, that may or may not be meaningful in real life for the disease. So there are a lot of ways to sort of game the system. But I think that within the field of science, most scientists are not not setting out to do this. To some extent, I want scientists taking big, complicated data sets or statisticians or researchers taking big, complicated data sets and like fiddling, right? Taking this out, uh, putting this in, weighting things differently and seeing what emerges. Uh, That's kind of part of the process of discovery. That's right. And I think, you know, I argue in the piece that we shouldn't think of p-hacking as this as this terrible thing that's cheating. We should actually make it compulsory. We should say, look, you need to fiddle around. You need to tell us. I mean, tell us every single variable that you collected, every way that you analyzed it. And, and don't just don't just give me the one thing that you got a good p-value for, you know, seeing them in context of the other of the other analyses. It really gets us a lot closer to truth. Right. And remember, that's what we're supposed to be going after, not the result and the publication in the sexy journal. A lot of people listening right now said, I don't know how many journals are that sexy, but I get your point <laughs> uh, You know, within this particular world. Yes. So let's talk about that. Let's talk about the the pressures that are on scientists to that lead towards uh, bad science, and that is really the heart of your piece. You you paint a pretty compelling picture of this moment in science as being a fraught one. There are retractions, fraud, public disputes. Sure, I've heard some people describe it as a crisis of confidence in science, and I think that that's a really good way of describing it. You know, it's not the scientific process isn't broken. Um, The incentives are absolutely broken. I think that there's pretty big consensus on that. But really what's going on is we have this incentive system that is misaligned with sort of the goals of science. And so scientists are rewarded for studies that are, you know, interesting, novel, um, different things that, um, you know, make the headlines in the popular media. This is something, too, that's happened over the years, as well as that publishing a paper that makes headlines can be very good for a scientist's career. And journals themselves and institutions themselves have incentives now, too, because they want funding, they want the journals want the best the best articles, that they want the best papers submitted. The institutions want to make the national media because a lot of them, you know, that, that brings in more donations, it enhances their reputation. So there's there are a lot of players here, there are a lot of vested interests who really have a stake in overselling the science. And I think if there's sort of one way to state, you know, what the problem is, I think it is this sort of overselling of results. <laughs> Thank you.
brings up an interesting question for me, which is uh, because you're talking about how we're telling stories about the science that we're doing, and that can be problematic. Mm -hmm. But then at the same time, your piece is also saying we need to talk about the process more. We need to show our work. We need to not just have the headline. Are those at odds with each other? Um, Yes and no. So stories are really, really useful. They're the way that we sort of wrap our heads around the data. They're the way we make sense of it. They're the way, you know, stories can be a really good gut check to like, okay, is this even plausible? Because if it doesn't, if it doesn't sort of pass that gut check, it doesn't mean the data are wrong, but it means like, whoa, there's something like you're really missing something here, right? But the problem is, you know, stories can be really dangerous too because they're so appealing and if they're truthy you know where they just feel true then it's easy to get attached to them and to forget that this is a story that was created to fit the data rather than you know an actual finding so you do a really good job uh in the piece and you you just did it here of talking about the sort of chain of perverse incentives and how at every point really there's these pressures but in my reading it and coming from the particular lens that I come at it, I read it as a media critique. And I just felt like, oh, God, this is all the media's fault. <laughs> oh, absolutely. It's part of the problem. You know, I don't think I think it's wrong here to to point to one thing. There is no single one problem. So I want to really caution against saying, you know, this is the one problem. I mean, yeah, that would that was... be pretty uh, ironic if you presented it as here's the one problem you need to know in right, order to right, understand right. the nuance of this story. But yes, I, yeah. I get. What yeah. You're so saying. there's not one problem, but the media is absolutely a part of it. And, you know, I've been I've been in on this. I mean, I've been, yeah, I've been a a journalist for 15 years and I can tell you that there are a lot of publications, magazines. I mean, a lot of the major newspapers have health and science sections. And so every week they need news. You know, there's not, I can assure you, there are not legitimate, you know, breakthrough level uh, findings being published every week. You know, this media thirst has sort of created this, this, need for hype, really. I'm reminded of actually something that Neil deGrasse Tyson said in the first episode of of this show, but he, he, he made this case for the fact that we're living in this golden age of celebrating our inner geek, is I think how he put it. And he's uh, evidence of that, right? And 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 I think about things like Radio Lab or TED Talks or Malcolm Gladwell and real sort of popular depictions of serious science. And when I heard Neil deGrasse Tyson talk about that, I said, oh, this is wonderful. You know, we're living in this moment. But now I'm, I'm start as you're talking, I'm starting to think, gosh, there's this thirst. And in order to fulfill that thirst, maybe we're compromising some of the rigor that science needs to have. I think there's just this tendency to overstate findings, both from the scientist perspective, because, you know, they want to have an important finding rather than, you know, one that says, well, this is really interesting, but more research is needed, right? Like no one that just feels like a real, real downer, even though that's usually um, the more truthful takeaway. Then you have the media themselves. You know, no one's going to read a story that says, you know, well, there's this, the headline would be something like, weak circumstantial evidence suggests maybe possibly, you know, eating this thing might perhaps, you know, reduce your risk of this bad thing. Like, no one, you know, no one's going to even read past It's the already headline. longer than a tweet, right? Exactly, there. right. Yeah. And another thing you just, you just mentioned, you talked about how sometimes it, there's the process of discovery and that the there's a there's the next hypothesis and it feels like the process gets cut off there and someone says okay that's a finding where does the pressure towards cutting it off and turning a hypothesis into a finding come from 
it goes back to this point I made earlier where there's a difference between an answer and a result. And I think all the incentives are pointing to where as soon as you get the result, that's where you stop. And in fact, um, Brian Nosek, one of one of the people that I uh, quote in the story, published another paper about this where he had done, he had been using this this big data set where people, users online had been submitting data, surveys or something. I can't remember all the details now, but they got this really interesting result. But they had all, all these, these data and they decided to go back and, and retest it with some other data because they had such a big data set that they could actually do this. And when they did, it went away. So they went from like having something that might have been publishable in one of the biggest journals to something that was a null result. And this is one of the problems, right, is that we don't tend to publish null results, especially if it's sort of like, you know, it's one thing when there's a really big, important scientific idea that's out there. Then if you produce a study that's overturning it or seems to contradict it, then that's newsworthy, right? right? And you can get that published. But if it's something where, well, we had this interesting hypothesis and we tested it and we didn't find anything. Like, those studies don't get published. See, so the solution here then is to just tell half the scientists to do bullshit studies and then the other <laughs> half to refute them. And then we'll just eventually move towards truth and we'll be able to just publish headlines over and over and over. I think we just not solved a, it. Yeah, not a bad idea. But there is actually, I think there's a better there's a better uh, solution out there that people are trying. And, and No Sex Group is one of them and his, and his institution. They are actually pushing for something called registered studies. And so the way this works is that that... Right now, what happens is you do your study, you get the results, you basically finish everything, and then you submit to the journal. And the way this new process would work, or is working, is that you create protocols, you um, create a study design, you lay out, you lay all your cards on the table. This is what we're going to measure. This is how we're going to analyze the results. Here's what we're looking for, et cetera, et cetera. And then the paper is accepted based on that before you've, before you've done the analysis and before you've collected the data. So people are evaluating your methodology, not your results. That's right. That's right. And that's, you know, that's really how it should be, I, I think. Is this becoming common practice or is it just this one sort of vigilante group that's doing it? Yeah, it's definitely not just one vigilante group. Um, there is a movement. Um, Open Science Framework is probably one of the leaders here. And right now there's about a dozen journals that have signed on to this and adopted all or some of these suggestions. And what about other solutions? Uh, I know in your piece you talk a bit about a group called Retraction Watch. And I know you've done research on other people who are trying to be, I guess, uh, watchdogs for bad science. Is anyone out there going to be able to keep people accountable? Well, you know, I think the internet has been huge for this. And there's kind of, there's some distinctions that should be made. So Retraction Watch is, is great. And they've been following retractions that journals put out. And more than that, looking at, they're, they're sort of saying, okay, we're not going to just let you post a retraction, which most journal retractions tend to be very sort of opaque and, and vague, and there's not a lot of information in a lot of them. And so they've actually gone in and reported on, okay, what's really going on? Why did this retraction happen? And one of the things that's come from this is that, you know, it's not always just innocent mistakes, some of these retractions. And so there's more of an eye on fraud, which there's some debate about whether there's more, you know, whether fraud and science is on the rise. Um, I think it's a little bit of an open question. 
Um, but what's clear is that science is done by humans and humans can, you know, scientists can be just as fraudulent as politicians and lawyers in every other field. So, you know, let's, let's just say, you know, it's, it's not that every scientist is perfect and no one ever cheats, but I don't think that that's the fundamental problem here. And in a way that's sort of the, the distraction, but then there are other ways of self where science itself is self-correcting, where someone did a study that wasn't a you know, a wrong study, what there wasn't some glaring mistake in how they did it. But it's just that, you know, it found one result, and then another study comes along, and then another showing something different. And when you put the sort of the results in aggregate, you have to look at the evidence together, right, and in whole. And so, you know, it will turn out that that study was was wrong or pointing us to the wrong idea. That's sort of the more important and traditional way that science self corrects, and that we need to sort of do more of that. I think what you're saying is that a lot of that should just kind of happen in the shadows more like it used to than now where at every step along the way something gets published or talked about or turn, turned into a headline or something. Yeah, I don't think it should be in the shadows at all, but I think that it's probably true that... Yeah, and I guess I didn't mean necessarily in the shadows, like no one is paying attention to it, but I guess within the scientific community as opposed to in public. Yeah, I think that's right. I think that um, it's great that the, the public is really interested in science. We need to foster that, I think. But not every scientific paper is, you know, needs to be a headline. You know, one of the problems is that when it's in the headline, it sort of implies that it's really important and big news and that we've made, we've reached some step towards understanding something. And sometimes these are baby steps. And, you know, we do people, the public, a disservice when every little finding gets hyped because then after a while, I mean, it's this, this issue of like coffee, it's good for you, it's bad for you. Those studies aren't unimportant, but you really have to look at the evidence in total. And so every time you're sort of hyping each little study, you lose sight of that. It's funny. As I was reading your piece, I was kind of thinking about my notions of how science used to be done. And, you know, I have this idea of like Kennedy gets up on a stage and says, we're going to go to the moon. And then they disappear and all the guys in skinny ties go do their science. And then like we're on the moon. If that had happened now, maybe it would have been thwarted by like every step along the way, these big headlines would have come out or we discovered this, we discovered this. You know, I wonder if like Obama should get up there and say, we're going to figure out if coffee's good for you or not. Give us two years. We're going to go do our science. <laughs> I would love if we did something like that, actually, because nutrition and he- nutrition and diet studies are some of the, the worst studies out there. And I don't mean that the people who do that research are terrible or that they do sloppy science, but it's a really hard problem. It's really hard to do properly. And so the you know, the scientific literature is just sort of polluted with really lousy nutrition and diet studies because it's it's really hard. It's a really hard problem to study. And so, yeah, it'd be great if we put as many resources on that. I, I don't see it happening. I want to ask a bit about presentation and telling us compelling story around uh, good science. Have you thought about whether it's actually possible to tell a compelling story that says, well, we tried this thing and it maybe got an answer and then we tried this other thing and it kind of hinted at this and we're not really sure, but we think that this study suggests X. I just bored myself saying that out loud. I'm sorry. I just fell asleep. What were you saying? <laughs> exactly. But is there any way to to solve this and be able to tell compelling, nuanced science stories? I think there is. I think there is. And um, 
I reviewed a book for the New York Times oh, a year ago, a year plus ago, The Sports Gene by David Epstein, that I think is just a superb example of this. I mean, here is this, the, the book is about the genetics of sports performance. And right. along the way, there were sort of all these opportunities to really overstate things and say, so, aha, here's the thing. And, you know, in fact, he sort of dismantles one example of this kind of reporting, which is Malcolm Gladwell's 10,000-hour uh, rule. And it's a fantastic book, and it really gets into this nuance of science and it doesn't oversell things. So I think it's possible to do, but it's a hell of a lot harder. I mean, it's much harder to write that compelling story than it is to say, here's the secret or here's the thing. I mean, the human brain just really hates uncertainty. And so stories that are about uncertainty are not, we, we just don't like them. But another thing you point out is that a lot of these fraudulent or untrustworthy studies are a result of the fact that people are people and they have their biases and they're bringing those to bear in the scientific work that they do. Yeah, that's right. And, you know, when you work as hard as you have to, to do science and to to get these results, you become really attached to them. I mean, no one wants to spend their whole PhD or or a bunch of years studying something that turns out to be nothing. Um, When I was an undergraduate, I I did some alpine ecology research and I spent all summer working on on this study. I got this cool result. And then the next summer... um, I graduated and another undergraduate came in and sort of took my my experiment the next step and couldn't get the protocol to work that I was using to um, do this particular test. And so for a while it was looking like my results were all invalid, like I had been doing something wrong. It turns out that she was the one doing the protocol slightly wrong, but it just shows like one of us spent an entire summer doing a bunch of research that was invalidated just because of the wrong reagent. So you believe in your result and you want it to be true. So it's hard to let that go. So I think that would be called, I don't know, sunk cost, right? Sunk You've already cost, put so much work in there. Yeah. Right? And, and and also confirmation bias, which you which you talk about, which is you want to see the results that you believe in and because you, you, you trust yourself. I mean, com- confirmation bias gets tossed around as this sort of boogeyman, but it really comes from a place of having faith in your own beliefs and and your own experience that's formulated a a, a thesis. But are there other kinds of biases that you feel like play into this world of science that you're describing? Yeah, I mean, I think the bias towards towards extreme results is one, but confirmation bias is such a huge one. And it's something that we all do. I sort of feel like one of the biggest challenges for me as a journalist is to always be really questioning. And, you know, when I'm reporting on something that's controversial or reporting on something at all, after I've looked at the evidence and read the papers or talked to people, you know, at some point I kind of have this formulation of what I think or how, you know, what seems true or how I'm going to write the story. And I always have to stop there and say, okay, so it's seeming like this study has shown this, or it's seeming like this is true. What would it take to convince me otherwise? Or what kind of evidence could exist that would invalidate that? And I found that that's a really good exercise to put yourself through because lots of times it's there but maybe you don't want to see it. Or you realize, for me as a journalist, I realize, you know, I never asked that question. Maybe I should go mm-hmm. back and, and double check about that thing. All of this stuff takes time. That's another important thing. It's it's really, at some point, you have to say, okay, I need to move on. I can't just be working on this one study. As we're discussing confirmation bias, it, it occurs to me that that's actually a social psychology phrase that comes to us from, you know, scientific research. So who knows if we should even trust that that's a thing because scientists <laughs> told us that it exists. I, but love I don't that. know how I to unwind that. that thought. Um, 
Are the problems that you describe with science, are they within a particular discipline? That's a good question. Um, I would say mostly no. These are problems across science. That said, there are certain fields where they're probably more problematic than others. Psychology is one that's really been called out, and clearly it's a big problem there, but it's not the only one. Um, Drug studies are another one where there's a lot of stuff going on um, with study design, actually, and just how, how things are done, looking at which endpoints are used, et cetera, et cetera. But the problem with the social sciences and some of the so-called softer sciences is actually that it's just a lot harder because you have this measurement problem, right? I mean, we found this in the, the p-value, the p-hacking interactive in my story. It's like, how are you going to measure the economy? You know, if you're interested in the economy, well, what does that mean? When you're studying particle physics, you know, we know what a quark is. We know how to measure it. You know, you don't have the same kinds of measurement problems, which is not to say, I mean, measuring things in physics is really hard too in a much different way. But whenever you, you in a lot of these social sciences, you have many more of these so-called researcher degrees of freedom where you have these decisions to make about how you're going to set up the, the study and in particular, how to measure and define things. I think that's where you really run into trouble. <laughs> Your piece is has this premise that there's this – science is in this moment of crisis and in a way it's in this moment of crisis because people are believing a lot of science that is not fundamentally sound. But aren't we also living in a moment when the distrust of science has never been higher? I'd say yes and no. I mean because we have – science sort of is all around us. We're using it. We're, we're, we're relying on it. There's sort of this – these two ways of looking at science that I think predominate now. One is that, well, it's a study and therefore it's truth with a capital T. Or there's, well, it's a study, but lies, damn lies, and statistics, you know, none of it's trustworthy. And the truth is somewhere in between, right? Like, it's not magic sauce, but it's, well, it is magic sauce. (laughs) (laughs) But it's like one of those sauces that has lots of complex flavors in it. Yeah, yeah. Let me me try and articulate a pushback a little bit to So something you just said and and see if I can get these words together. (laughs) But you're making a compelling case for talking about nuance and talking about the process and describing how things are not answers, but they're hypotheses and they're steps along a process. But I have to say that when I think about the global warming debate, one of my big frustrations has been that the scientific community has been unable, it feels like for decades, to just say, this is happening, this is real, and we need to get our act together. And that can, there's this continual hang-up with the nuance of science, and it gives the other side this ability to say, ah, it's just a theory. Shouldn't there be moments where scientists say, no, this is truth with a capital T and something needs to happen? Well, I think that's happened with with global warming. I mean, I think that, you know, there's a very strong consensus that it's happening, it's real, but it's nuanced, right? It's happening, it's real. Where we get in where we get into the discussion and where people start to disagree is what do we do about it and what are the best ways but to proceed and I don't how- know. I, I'll just say though, I I have found I think it's frustrating when I hear scientists on the radio or in in pieces add that extra little bit of caveat. Go out of their way to sort of say, well, you know, this study showed this, but it may it may end up to prove to be this. I, I want just less nuance you, on that particular 
issue. You just made my point, Jody. That's what it's How so? it's your that's what that's what needs to change. We need we need people like you to understand that it is intermediate and that it isn't. So if we present science and say, okay, so global warming's happening, it's real. We know that. That's not the issue that you're pushing back against. You're saying, yeah, but I want them to be able to say that this particular hurricane was was global warming or climate change or this particular thing and and it can't do that. And so um, we need to understand that there is certainty, there are degrees of certainty, and we have a very high degree of certainty that global warming is happening, that it's being caused by by humans. Um, but there's a lot of nuance within that, and that's what we're working now to, and by we, I mean scientists, not myself. Yeah, climate is extremely complex, is an extremely complex system. And so you're asking for a degree of certainty that just is impossible to achieve. But if the other side of the climate change debate is willing to take that 1% of uncertainty or that very small sliver of uncertainty and use that as their weapon to dispute the entire issue, how do scientists in all their nuance fight back against that? No, exactly. You just made the point. The reason they can do that, the reason they can take that sliver of uncertainty and blow it up into something like it's wrong is that people don't understand that that uncertainty is inherent. And so, yes, actually... Our discomfort with uncertainty is something that can be very easily exploited in order to discredit very good, rigorous science. And that's another really important reason why we as a culture, as a society, need to make peace with that uncertainty and need to understand it and and learn that it's okay and that it doesn't mean that science is wrong or that it's being done incorrectly. It's that scientists are actually being careful, and we want them to be careful because we want to work our way toward truth. So I have one more question, which is, I'm just curious where you sort of landed at the end of, of your process, uh, your writing process. And, and you write that you, you say, if we're going to continue to rely on science for reaching the truth, and then you say, and it is still the best tool we have. And it reminds me of that phrase about democracy, right, which I'm sure you were purposefully evoking that, you know, it's the worst system of government except for all the others. Right. So where does your faith in science stand at the end of this of this work? Oh, I, I have I have a lot of faith in science. Um, like I said, I really do think it's the best process we have, the best the best tool we have for seeking truth. Um, so one of the things that never even made it into any of my drafts because I tested it on my husband and he just cowered. <laughs> but I'm a fan of the TV show Friday Night Lights, and so I came up with this this motto for science, which is clear eyes, full data, okay to lose. <laughs> So you can see why it got cut. Um, yes. But I, I really think that, you know, we need a motto like that. You know, you, you look at things with clear eyes, you know, away from your bias. You look at full data, you know, all, all of the data, all of the evidence that we have. And we need this culture where it's okay to lose. It's okay to let go of your treasured theories, your treasured ideas, you know, where we're open. I mean, I think this is really about an open-mindedness and a curiosity. And I think that a lot of people... Um, I don't think that I'm alone in being drawn to science because of this sort of inherent curiosity. And I think that we need to foster that and make it okay to say, well, you know, let me look at things from a different way and, and let me ask some questions instead of becoming so tied to things that we want to be true. You know, we need to foster that that openness. I'm going to petition to have that mantra over the the doorway at 538 and like football yes. players, you know, we'll tap it as we walk in every day and go to work. Christy Ashwanda, uh, thank you very much for joining us and congratulations on a great piece which people can read at 538.com right now. My pleasure. Thanks, Jody. And 
remember, on our website, you can see Christy and Richie King's interactive on p-hacking, where you too can become an ethically compromised scientist. Find a link at 538.com slash podcasts. What's the Point's editor is Chadwick Matlin. Our video producer is Ryan Nantel with help from Jordan Shulkin. Joel Werner helped mix and produce this episode. My name is Jody Avergan. I'm on Twitter at Jody Avergan. Email us at podcasts at 538.com. Get in touch if you have any reaction to this episode or if there are any topics or guests you think we should cover in future episodes. Our music is by Rishikesh Hirway, who also hosts the excellent Song Exploder podcast. Subscribe on iTunes. While you're there, look up What's the Point and give us a rating and a review. That helps others discover the show. Everybody wins. Thanks for listening. See you soon. What's the Point listeners? I'm Chadwick Matlin. I'm Kate Fagan. I'm Neil Payne. And together we make up the crew of Hot Takedown, 538 Sports Podcast. Kate, how would you describe the show if you had to do it in like five seconds? It's freaking awesome. Okay, Neil? We take down hot takes. Look at that. That's we- sort of the title. Good point. <laughs> so if you want to hear us talk about the week in sports news and what people are talking about in an uninformed way and ha- hear about the data and the stats and the analytics that take them down, subscribe in the iTunes store, search for Hot Takedown. To find us, we'll talk to you then. Do it.